told Jeff and TJ I was going to use the stool today, and they threatened to spin it down before I sat on it, so I'd be sitting on my knees by the end of the service. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, we are in our final week of our First Things First series, where we've been looking at firsts in Scripture. It kind of fit with the beginning of the year, and kind of uh, looking at some of the important firsts in Scripture. We looked at the first day, we looked at the first sin, we looked at the first sacrifice, and last week we looked at the first rule, uh, really the first commandment of that you should have no other gods before me. Um, and when I, when I started putting this together, I guess this was probably uh, early November, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to preach this specific uh, passage of Scripture this morning. I didn't know that we were, uh, you know, God kind of worked it out over the couple of months to, to kind of get the others together. And we spent a whole lot of time in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, and we haven't even jumped into the New Testament. And so uh, this morning we're going to do that, and, and our final, uh, final thought of of this entire series. And so uh, we're going to talk about a, uh, a topic that many of you, if you're growing up in a, in a good Baptist home, you're going to start to sweat a little bit when I talk about the first miracle, right? Because we know that we're going to talk about wine in a Baptist church and everybody gets a little nervous when we do that. But when you think about the first recorded miracle in scripture, uh, the water to wine is, is it's kind of an odd one. When you think about all the things that Jesus did from all the feedings to the, to the healings to um, the, the raising of Lazarus and, and, and you know, walking on water and calming the storm. Uh, the other odd one, if we're going to kind of, we're going to label those odd. The first one is, uh, is water to wine. The other odd one is the, the withering of the fig tree. You guys remember that. And it's kind of just this kind of odd miracle that Jesus does. But there's a lot behind it as is there's a lot behind this morning. So in our first things first series, I thought what greater thing to talk about is the first uh, miracle that Jesus performed uh, that we have recorded for us in Scripture. And, and, and I'm going to be willing to bet that most of you know that, and you knew that it was watered wine, but maybe you've not ever really understood why the significance of that miracle is so important. Uh, maybe you've heard some analogies and some, uh, some things that people have drawn out of, that, uh, out of that passage of Scripture. But today what I hope is as we look at it, you'll see it with a fresh light and fresh eyes and maybe even a fresh heart to see exactly what all's going on in this passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to be in John chapter 2. And, uh, and John gives us this uh, account of Jesus' first miracle, which is a, a, an incredible um, passage of Scripture. He does this right uh, before... Uh, John chapter 3, which is one that we're all fairly familiar with, the story of Nicodemus and all that great stuff. And so in John 2, um, uh, what I want to do this morning is a little different, and that's why I have the stool, because I just I feel like I want to be comfortable this morning. I want to talk to you guys like I'm talking to uh, just some friends that would maybe even kind of come over and work through this together. If you don't know this, uh, <clears throat> pastors like to package things real nice and neat. Uh, I, I, you know, I went through seminary. They didn't ever teach me how to do uh, some of the things that I think they probably should have. Uh, I remember my, my great friend, Bob Inman, who was, uh, he was the pastor of the very first church that I served at officially uh, on staff before we moved here. And, uh, and Bob, uh, Bob was saved in his early to mid-30s, called the pastor in his early 40s, and went through seminary and uh, graduated with, uh, with his MDiv and he said he went to his very first church and they looked at him and said, great, uh, VBS starts next week. And he said, okay, great, who's in charge of VBS? And they said, you are. And he said, okay, great, what's VBS? 
He, he didn't grow up in church. He didn't know anything about it. And so there are some things, some practical things that, you know, they just don't really walk us through in seminary. And so it's, it's kind of funny to think about. Uh, we just kind of learn to do these things. And so some of the packaging uh, that we do with our sermons is we like, to, we like to make them neat. We kind of like to make them so you can remember them. I'll never forget. Uh, Craig Jenkins, he was here a few months ago. Back again, Craig, uh, I, I always kind of picked on him. He would start every sermon with either a joke or a poem um, or a story, a joke or a story, and then he'd have three points and he'd end with the poem. Every Sunday service, I would, I would just sit out there and laugh and go, okay, here's the joke, and he'd tell the joke, and then he'd go into his three points and he'd end with this little poem, and it was always so good. That's just the way, his little model that he used. Some pastors use alliteration. You know, you get the, the power, the providence, and the position. You always get those P, three Ps or whatever. I, I use uh, my last thought. That's about the only thing that I, I normally put in. If you've been around here long enough, I try to leave you with one last thought. Uh, that's kind of my format always. Uh, some guys like to have just one point. Some guys like to have 17. I don't know how many they need to. But today, what I want to do is this is not packaged nice and neat. Okay, This is, this is literally, I promise, this is exactly my notes on this passage of scripture as I worked through it for the past couple of months. I would I use those big yellow notepads and I just write down things and I draw arrows and I and I scratch things out and I do all that kind of stuff to to prepare and and so this morning I thought I could I could try to package it but I think you lose a little bit when you try to package it uh, I think what would be best for us is to just kind of work through this passage of scripture it's eleven verses long it's kind of long as we read it uh, we're going to chunk it out and as we work through it I just want you to see. Wow, look how God's moving in this moment. Look what God may be teaching me through these just few verses. And so um, I do have a last thought because it's kind of ingrained in me. Uh, but everything, there's no points. I just have some, some major things that I have up on the screen. So if you have your Bible, I want you to follow along with me. I want you to circle things. I want you to make notes because I think it's important for you to, to kind of see as this story unfolds. And so let's look at it uh, together. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 starts off. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Please know that's not, a, that's not him being sassy. That's a term of endearment, okay? So when you read that in our culture, we go, wow, you talk to your mama like that? But that was a term of endearment. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet coming. There's a number of different things happening here, but the first one I want you to see is that this is on the third day. This is the traditional marriage day of Jews even today in, in, in modern uh, time. Jews get married on Tuesdays. And this goes all the way back to uh, creation. If you know your creation story, on the third day of creation, uh, God said it is good twice. He, he separated the land and the sea and then uh, he said, it is good. And then he made the vegetation and all the seed-bearing plants. And he said, it is good. And in Jewish culture, it's called the double blessing day. And so they get married on Tuesdays because God said it was good twice as a double blessing to their marriage. Why is that important to us right now? Because this is scripture backing up historical fact, right? We know this to be true. They still practice this like this. And so that little part of on the third day, a wedding took place. That's not unimportant. It's if you know the story, you go, of course it's a wedding day. That's the day they have their weddings. And so Jesus is invited to be a part of that. Now notice this. This is where I want us to pause because uh, 
whomever this person was, we don't know who the people are who are getting married. But we do know that they wanted Jesus there. Before there was ever a problem or a dilemma or an emergency for him to deal with, they just wanted him there. They wanted his presence at their wedding. They invited them him to be a major part of the probably the most important day of their life. Not so that he could do something, but either because of the closeness of their relationship with him or, or because of the desire for his presence or his involvement in their life. They just wanted Jesus there. And church, if you hear nothing this morning... This is just as I wrote it in my notes. It's on the screen. We've got to stop inviting Jesus to be a part of our lives only when they're falling apart. And start inviting him without an expectation of intervention. We have to stop inviting Jesus only when our lives are at rock bottom. When when we've exhausted every other opportunity for us to figure things out on our own. And start inviting Jesus without any expectation of him moving in our life at all. God, I just want you here. I just just want you to be a part of of everything that I'm doing because I want everything I'm doing to be a part of what you want me to be doing. We've got to start inviting him and wanting and desiring him just to be here without any promise of intervention at all. Far too many of us see Jesus as this emergency backup, right? As, as as uh, As our, you know, get out of jail free card as our last option. And, and if we're honest, we, we do invite him when we've hit rock bottom or when cancer or sickness or death is knocking at the door. And, and I love that Jesus was just a guest here. He was, just, he was just wanted at the wedding before he was ever needed to do anything. Man, we could learn a big lesson from this. So the question has to be asked, do you want him to be a part of your everyday life or do you just want all that he can do for you in your life? That's a hard, like like seriously, do you want him to be a part of everything just because you want him, just because you want him there? Or do you want him there so that he can do things for you? Because here's the reality, and I wrote this, and I think this is so true. If you're saved then he could literally do nothing else for you and you've already gotten more than you deserve. More. He doesn't have to do anything else. And sometimes we see him as this genie in a bottle or this Santa Claus that we can sit on his lap and say, here's my wish list, here's the things I need you to do for me and now now stay where you are and I'm going to go live my life and I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. And that's not how these people saw Jesus. They just wanted him there. They just wanted him to be a part of what was happening. The second thing that I think we should notice in these verses is, it says in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Uh, my, not, my time has not yet come. Uh, a problem came up. Right? Something happened. And Mary knew that he could fix it. Like there was no hesitation there. There was no what if. There was no, there's no scrambling. There's no question in her mind. Who had the ability to rectify the situation? But when things happen in our life, 
oftentimes Jesus is the last person that we call for help. I'll, I'll, I'll figure this one out or I'll, I'll try to do this or I'll try to do that or I'll call so-and-so. They've always got really good advice. But when this problem arose, Mary knew exactly who to go to. There wasn't a panic in her voice. There wasn't even a pause. It was, they have no more wine. And notice this, and this is really, really important. She didn't tell him how to fix it. She just told him the problem. And some of us get in a really bad habit of saying, God, this is what's going on in my life. I need you to do this, 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 and this, and then everything will be fine. There was a problem. And she just said, here's the problem. And she left it with him. I know that even by your own nervous laughter there, I'm not the only person who does that. God, if you'll just do this, then everything will be fine. God, if you'll just work it out this way, then I will be the most committed Christian ever. God, if you'll just work this for my benefit. And we inform the creator of the universe on how to work in our life as if he doesn't have it under control. Now let me pause here because this is not my notes, but I can say this. Men, <laughs> I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> Have you ever walked into the kitchen and told your wife how to cook dinner? Oh, somebody just, we're going to have counseling after service. I can already tell. I'll, I'll never forget my, so my grandmother, my, my mom's mom, uh, made this dessert. And I don't know how to make it. Jessica knows how to make it. Uh, she actually tried to write it down. My grandmother went to uh, the eighth grade in school. And so the, the, her, her recipe, you couldn't really understand, couldn't read it. And so uh, she made this thing called a chocolate roll. And it's just this pastry that's got chocolate and syrup and butter and all the things that are really good for you in it. And it's fantastic. It was just our thing. She always had it. No matter when we showed up to her house, there was chocolate, roll, fresh chocolate roll in the oven. And we would just, I mean, as kids, we would just devour it. And so I, I remember my mom uh, decided to make it one day. And she's got a sink full of dishes because we didn't have a dishwasher. And the, the water's in one side and the dirty dishes are in the other side. And she's over here making these I don't think that's how Reba does it. <laughs> and like mom grabbed this dough, this is a dough ball with all this stuff, grabbed it and just wham, threw it in the sink full of water. Water went everywhere and said, you make it then. And dad was like, sorry. You know, <laughs> like what do you do? How do you inform someone who already knows how to make it, how to do it? Man, how many times have you been trying to put something together? And your wife walk into the garage and go, are you doing that right? And you grit your teeth and you go, yes, dear. No, you don't. You go, yes, I am. Leave me alone, right? You, because why would we inform? How ridiculous is it for us to inform God on how to fix our life when he's 
the creator of our life. He's the sustainer of our life. He's the one who gives us life and breath to begin with. And yet sometimes we still feel like we need to set him down with some sort of instruction manual that we've crayoned together and say, this is more how I want it to go. This is a better way. If you just do it like this. I think sometimes God's looking at us going, really? Do you you want me here? Or do you just want me to do things for you? Mary informed him of a problem. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's the greatest part. God, we can come to you with our problems. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence, right? We can come to him and say, hey, listen, this is what's going on in my life, and I don't know what to do. I'm just going to give it to you. There's nothing wrong with what Mary did here. There's a lot of things she did right. But did you notice this response? This is so interesting. He says, my time has not yet come. And honestly, I struggled with this verse for a long time. It almost feels like Jesus doesn't want to help. Why are you coming with me with this? It's not time for me to help yet. As a matter of fact, does it mean that Jesus was forced to help because of Mary? If you know the rest of the story, you know that he intervenes. Did he only do that because of Mary? Because that's the Catholic thought. I can just tell you the difference between Catholic and Protestant thought right now. Is this, this is the, one of the main reasons why Catholics pray to Mary. Because they feel like if, if they ask Mary, Mary will ask Jesus and he'll do whatever she says because of this miracle. Does that mean he was forced into it because his mom made him? doesn't seem like what Scripture teaches us about who Jesus is. But then the answer is really found in Jesus' own words. He said, my time has not yet come. This is a not yet response from Jesus. And isn't that exactly what we love to hear from him? God, I need you in my life. I need you to intervene. He says, not yet. But God, like you don't understand, I've got this emergency and I need you to, not yet. But I want this and I need this and I just, not yet. And the sad reality is, is that a lot of us would rather him say no than not yet. We would just rather have an answer of no than an answer of wait. Because we feel like our timing is better than his timing. We feel like that the things that we understand are on a better level and a better, greater, you know, wider, broader sense of understanding than what he has. And we think if it happens at this time, we're better off than if it's happening later. And he sometimes just says, not yet. It's not time yet. This brings me back to the question that I had to ask myself, why? Why not yet? Why in this moment does God not just answer the issue that's being placed in front of him? Why in our moments does God not just immediately answer the issues that are placed in front of him? And I believe for us personally, sometimes he wants to see if our faith is really there. Or if we're just coming to him to get what we want and then to leave him later. Sometimes that not yet is a test of our own faithfulness. and has nothing to do with his faithfulness to us. Here in this moment, I think it goes back to the original language, and I know that most of us don't read Greek. I don't read Greek. But in the original language, this whole verse really is translated better. It makes a little bit more sense. 
If you go back, it says this. The wine having failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they are short of wine. If you were to go back to the original and go kind of word for word, the better translation here, it's talking about the wine failing and Mary telling Jesus they're short. The wine failed. Preparations weren't enough. Who, whoever, someone did not do an adequate job, right? Something did not happen the way they thought it should or, or the way they planned for it to, and they are short of wine. And this happens to us in our life all the time, right? Something failed. Something did not go the way we thought it would. Something did not happen the way we planned for it to. Something blew up in our face and drug us to a place that we should have never been to begin with. Something failed. Or someone failed. An expectation that we had was not met. Someone betrayed or, or, or manipulated a relationship. Someone failed. And it brought question and it brought hurt and it brought distrust into a relationship. And now we're short. We're short on forgiveness. We're short on patience. We're short on love. We're short on grace. We're short on what we thought we were going to have versus what we're actually experiencing. There's a gap, and we don't know what to do with that gap. Something failed, and now we're short. And we, like Mary, are asking just Jesus, just do something, just do something. And he responds, not yet. Because I believe sometimes... God doesn't want us to be short on something. He wants us to be completely out of it. I think sometimes short implies that we may have a little left or that there, there may be a way that we can get by. But hear this and excuse the, the poor analogy. Sometimes God allows us to get to the bottom of our barrel so that we realize that he's the only one who can actually help us. Poor wine analogy, I know. But I believe sometimes God allows us to get to the very bottom. Not just short, not just running low, but all the way out so that we realize he's the only one who can do something here. I think in this miracle, him saying not yet was not a reluctance to help. It was a timing issue. It's not the right time. The wine was failing. But it hadn't completely failed. Because if, if in this situation, if there was some left, then whatever Jesus did next could have been explained by, well, maybe they found some more, or maybe there was enough they could ration it, or maybe there was just something they were unaware of. They had to completely fail before he was willing to step in and do what only he could do. And for us, sometimes we, we think, well, I'm running low or I'm almost at the bottom, and God says, yep, not yet. Because you need to realize that I'm the only one who can get you out of this. Sometimes you need to realize that I'm the only one who can help you through this. 
And we get so mad that we have to hit the bottom of the barrel when God's trying to do something only he can do. We need him. And sometimes we need to be put in a position where that's all we have is him. So Jesus is there and the wine is failing and Mary tells him, hey, listen, there's this problem. And Jesus says, not yet. And then verse 5, this is probably the most incredible verse of all of them. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. Learn this lesson if you learn nothing else today. If you want God to move in your life, if you want to feel his presence and experience him in a way that you never had before, if you're asking for a miracle of God in your life, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. How dare we, church? How dare we ask for God to intervene and to work and to work miracles in our life if we're unwilling to obey whatever he's asking us to do? How can we come to him and say, God, I need you to do this? And he says, well, I've been asking you to do this all along and you haven't. Yeah, but I need you to do this because it's more important than me doing what you want me to do. How dare we ask if we're not fully obedient? Mary just says, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever it is, just do it. This was, they were instructed, I wrote in my notes, they were instructed to obey without a promise of intervention. They were instructed to obey without a proof of a miracle. How dare we ask God to work and move and encounter us if we're unwilling to obey him. He doesn't ever have to again. And our response to him should always be immediate obedience. Look what the servants do, verse 6, it's great. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that used for juice for ceremonial washing, each holding from about 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I looked up this verse in multiple different translations. And they all said the same thing. They filled them to the brim. Because... There is no such thing as half-hearted obedience. There's no such thing of halfway doing what Jesus asks us to do. Because half obedience is full disobedience. Half obedience is not all the way to the brim. And sometimes I believe God has been asking and begging us to do things for him. And we're just halfway doing it. We're just halfway giving it our effort. We're just halfway going there. And we're just saying, it'll be fine. I'm kind of doing what you've asked me to do. And there is no halfway obedience. Because half obedience is full disobedience. The servants, they get it. Like they get, they understand. And I love this because they didn't know what he was going to do. They had no idea what was going to happen. At no point did Jesus just, just kind of pull them aside and say, hey, listen, listen, if you just go over there and get this thing full of water, then I'm going to do something crazy. It's going to turn into wine, and you give it to the master of the ceremony, and he's going to be floored. I'm going to show you something really cool if you'll just do it. This was them fully uninformed, fully unknowing, and yet still fully obedient to do whatever he asked them to do all the way to the brim. 
if we look through scripture, in every instance when God calls somebody to do something, never does he pull them aside and explain the step-by-step process of how it's going to work out for them. Never does he, does he ask somebody to do something and say, hey, listen, if you'll just do this, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, and then it'll all be great. He never does this. Go all the way back through the Old Testament miracles, right? When God told Abraham to go, he said, go, and I'll tell you where to stop. And Abraham went, right? When he told Moses to lead the people, he said, go lead the people. And Moses led them. When he told Joshua to go into the promised land and fight the people who were there, Joshua went and fought. He just did whatever God asked him to do. When Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, they just went. They went from men who were afraid hiding in an upper room to men who were standing on the street pointing their fingers at the Jewish elite saying, you are the ones who killed Jesus. You are the ones who let all this happen. Why? Because God told them to go. And they just went. They had no idea what was going to happen. And now, now, 2,000 years later, you and I are sitting in a church free to worship a God who lives because of their full obedience because they didn't do it halfway. Can you imagine If Peter only did it halfway. Can you imagine if James only lived half obedient to the resurrected Christ? We wouldn't have what we have in the New Testament. We wouldn't have the expounding story of the church. And we would not be sitting here today talking about a God who loves us fully and how we should be fully obedient to him. Their life wasn't easy. It's not what he's promised They had had some persecution. They had some hard times. They had some things where they were really unsure if their obedience was going to pan out. But God was faithful even through death. And nine times out of ten, when God asks us to do the simplest of things, we bring him a half-empty jug. To the brim, church. Then there's the miracle, and we're almost done. Verse 9, 8. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then they called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guest had had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. I love this. I love that the master of the banquet had no idea what was going on. He had had no clue. The most important person, the person in charge, had no clue what was going on. But the servants knew. And this, the lowest of the low, the ones on the bottom of the social scale, the one who fully obeyed, they knew what was going on. And this is the picture of what a follower of Christ is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be the most important people in the room. We're supposed to be the servants, right? I would much rather not be the most important person in the room and be clueless of what's happening. I would much rather get to be the servant and witness miracles. That's our job, to be servants. And servants get to witness miracles. Why would we ever want to be in the other position? When we can be hands-on and see what God's doing. And don't miss this. There's a lot of 
told you there's a lot of analogies and a lot of interpretation in this passage of scripture about what the water to wine means. And you can read all those if you want to on your own. Talk about how this is a symbol for Christianity coming out of Judaism. This is a symbol of the new covenant for coming out of the old covenant and all this kind of stuff. I, I'm not, I even read an article uh, about a month ago about a guy who went all sciency on me and talked about the molecular composition of how the water changed into wine and how the instantaneous fermentation process happened and it went way over my head. I'm not going to get into any of that. Here's what I want you to notice about this miracle. Two things. Number one, Jesus exerted no effort in performing this miracle. The Bible says that he didn't even touch it. He said, go fill them up and then go dip it out. There was, no, there was no waving of a magic wand. There's no abracadabra moment, right? He didn't, he didn't push his hands out and make a grimaced face and change. He just said, fill it up and go serve it. There was no effort. This is proof that this is something only God can do. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes, are we making things harder than they have to be when we can go to the one where nothing is hard for? We make things very difficult. Instead of just going to the one whom nothing is impossible. No effort. And the second thing I want you to see is what Jesus provided was better than anything else. It wasn't just good wine. It was the best wine. It wasn't just okay. It was the, the guy said, you saved the best until now. Why would we ever want to skip the best? Why would we ever want to substitute something else for what could be the best? Why would we ever convince ourselves that we could somehow manifest something that could ever be incomparable to what God can manifest? Because he's going to do the best. Why would we not just allow him? Alert him of our issue, leave him with the problem, and trust him to do what he's going to do. Our responsibility is just to obey fully. Here's my last thought, and I'm done. I told you I had that structure. That's the only structure I have. This is a hard one. And you think, well, this is the end of the miracle. What, what's the... It's not. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. Thus, he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Did you catch why he did the miracle in the first place? He revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. Think back over all the miracles that you can even just quickly come up with in Scripture. Old Testament miracles, the burning bush, parting of the Red Sea, Gideon's fleece being wet or dry, manna from heaven, the walls of Jericho falling, fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, remember that with Elijah. All the way through the New Testament miracles that we've even referenced at the beginning of service, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the, uh, the healing of multiple people, whether they were lame or blind or leprous or whatever. Think about the, uh, the walking on water and the calming of storms, raising the dead and casting out demons. Which of any of these miracles that Jesus performed were about anything other than God's glory being revealed. 
I mean, people benefited from these miracles, obviously, right? We get to see those. But that they themselves were not the focus of the miracle. It was always about who God is, what God can do, and to bring glory back to God. And so we have to ask ourselves some really hard, self-evaluative questions. Are the things that you're asking God to do for you, the miracles that we're praying for, the way that you're asking God to intervene and work and act, are they more about you or about His glory? I mean, we'll give them the glory, right? Deep down, real talk, they're more about our wants and desires than they are about making His name known. We have to, we have to change the way that we pray. It, this should change the way that we live our life and the way that we worship. It's all to reveal His glory. And have others place their faith in him. It changes the way that we ask for things. No longer is it, God, I need you to do this for me because I have this really good reason. Now it's, God, I'm asking you to intervene so that no one else can take credit for what only you can do. God, I'm asking this selfishly, maybe even for my own benefit but God I want more I want more what you can do not what you can do for me it's all about the focus of our heart it's all about making him known in our lives so that others can place their faith in him And what that requires from us, church, is that requires us telling the story of his faithfulness even when he works things that benefit us. We should never walk away from a miracle patting ourselves on the back. Look what God did for me. Look what he did for my family. Look how he changed and radically did this for me. Because if that's your focus, you've missed the miracle. We should walk away and say, look what God did. Look how God intervened. Look how God answered prayers. He's the only one who can do what he did. And if you don't know who he is, then let me tell you about what he's done. That's the focus. And too often we ask for a miracle so that we can be the end result of that instead of his glory and his name being known. And so we have to change the way we pray. We have to change the way we respond. We have to change the way we are fully obedient. We're not obedient hoping for a miracle. We're obedient because he's already worked miracles. We're obedient because he's what he's already done in our life. And we're just going to do whatever he says. And hopefully along the way, we get to witness the miracles. And we get to give him the glory. So this is, this is your response time. I'm going to ask TJ to come up and, and Miss Ruth's going to play. And, and, and this is really the easiest way I can wrap this thought up. Is to make you do some hard thought. 
What is it that you're asking God to do and why are you asking him to do it? This first miracle tells us that it's all about him, that he is first. It's the same thing that we've continued to read over this whole series. As first things first, it's him. It's not our wants, it's not our desires, it's not our mess that needs to be fixed. It's his name and his glory that's going to be revealed in and through what you're asking him to do. So how do you need to apologize for informing God of how to work miracles in your life? Would you stand with me? TJ's going to sing over us. We're going to bow our heads and I'm going to pray. And if you need to come forward and just kind of have some honest conversation with God, you're welcome to do that. If you need to come talk to me about what it means to have this kind of miraculous work of God in your life and how you could even tap into that, I would love to talk to you about that. If you have questions about the church or about baptism or about full obedience, what what does that mean? What does that look like? I'd love to talk to you. But more than all of that, Maybe just for a second, can we just be real enough with God and apologize for informing Him on how to run our life. Give Him what we have. Ask for Him to do something only He can do. And trust that His timing is perfect in it. And that if it were to ever happen, that he would be the center and focus of all of it. Father, we love you and we thank you for the lessons of this first miracle. Things that we've probably read a hundred times and never really even stopped and thought a whole lot about. But God, today you've revealed some things to us. You've You've challenged our hearts in ways that we only can respond in obedience toward. And so today, God, I just pray. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know who you are and doesn't understand why you would love us enough to even want to be involved in our life, God, they would ask questions. God, if there's somebody here that, that knows that and can rest assured in the salvation, the miracle of salvation that they've already received, God, that their life is just a, a reflection of full obedience. And maybe there's some things that we're not fully doing that you're bringing to our hearts right now. Maybe there's some areas of our life that we're kind of half-hearted obedience in. God, forgive us of that. How dare we give you anything more than full to the brim. And so, Father, the things that we are facing and the giants that we feel like are staring us down and the miracles that we are praying for on a daily basis, God, we are asking these things not so that we can congratulate ourselves, but so that, Father, we can give you glory and that your name is known among people who know the stories. And, God, if they don't know the stories, let's tell them of the goodness of our God and how we as servants get to witness miracles. Father, break our hearts. Speak to us in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to come, you come.